Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about political crises and their resolution. First up, we will be discussing Spain, which after over a year of waiting, finally has a new government in place. And very happy that the head of ECFR's office in Madrid, Borja Lacheras, and um, a, a council member from Spain and also editor of uh, in chief of Es Global, Cristina Manzano, will help us make sense of, of what that means. And the other crisis is one which is still unraveling rather than being resolved. It's the never-ending saga around Brexit, where we're going to hear from uh, Connor uh, Quinn in our London office about the state of the legal battles around the uh, implementation of Article 50 and what role Parliament will play in that. So why don't we start with Spain, Borja? Why don't you tell us uh, what's going on? How come there is a new government? Who's in the government? And what can we expect from it? Well, I mean, after after nearly a year of a caretaking government, ever since we had elections in December 2015, inconclusive elections, as a matter of fact, and we had elections again in, in June uh, this year, we finally, uh, we finally had agreement in Parliament to vote back uh, the government of Prime Minister Rajoy from the Conservative Popular Party amid significant turmoil and especially within the Socialist Party, uh, internal bickering and, and a resolution that saw the dismissal of the then leader of the Socialist Party and a managing body in the Socialist Party that allowed uh, the members of parliament to abstain and thus allowed a minority government ruled by the Popular Party. So um, the, the good news is that we the, the, the bickering over, over government formation is over, but not the political instability. Paradoxically, at times where Spain is actually growing economically, but our, our political instability is here to stay. And it's here to stay because our, our party system is shattered, but not entirely destroyed. The old refuses to die entirely, and the new, the new parties, Podemos, Ancianos are not as strong enough to, to rule on their own or, or significantly change the system. So Rajoy, who is well known for being a very cautious, prudent, sometimes people think maybe too much so, uh, prime minister, has, has given uh, conflicting signals with this new government that was appointed uh, yesterday, last night. And, and this new government has some signals of continuity and some signals of change. Continuity, given the the, continu the the continuing presence of some people close to his, you know, in his entourage, such as the Minister of Economy and the Deputy, all-powerful Deputy Prime Minister Soraya Sanz Santa Maria. Um, but we have also changed, and Rajoy sent some signals to the opposition by getting rid of his most controversial ministers, chiefly the Minister of Interior, Fernandez Diaz, but also the uh, Foreign Minister, Margallo. So uh, there's, there are elements of continuity and elements of change. He also brings in, as defense minister, uh, the current Secretary General of the Popular Party, 
Dolores Cospedal. Uh, she will be uh, a little bit like Carmen Chacón with the Socialist Party in 2008, just with the Conservative Party. Um, you know, a female defense minister. In terms of foreign affairs, uh, broadly speaking, we've seen a change from an overly political minister, Margallo, from uh, towards um, more technical, if you will, career diplomat uh, and former permanent representative of Spain to the EU, Alfonso Dastis. He brings negotiation capacities, skills, diplomatic skills, maybe uh, less political clout, but we'll see. So you have a new government, but it will be a government extremely controlled by parliament. Spain is changing, but it's not changing entirely yet. And there's an open question of what is the future of the country in Europe. So, uh, Cristina, do you want to um, speculate a bit on what the new Spanish um, foreign policy or European policy might be with this with this new government? Whether it's just the faces that are changing, or do you think that the policies might change as well? There is a clear intention to regain weight in Europe. There is this common assumption that Spain has lost uh, influence or. It doesn't have any influence at all in the European realm uh, for the last, uh, I would say, decade. Um, it's not only been the, the Conservative Party, but even before that, Spain started to lose weight. Uh, it started to lose presence in the governing organs. It started to to um, to lose opinion in the most uh, essential issues. So that, I think, is the first um, objective of this new government in, in foreign policy, to regain weight in Europe with all the issues that that means. For instance, uh, gaining a presence in the Central European Bank, which we lost several years ago because it was... But, you know the renewal of the of the body, but then we the the only presence we had was a lady which had been um, accused of being related with a corruption case, so she had to step that out. That to be there, especially in these times of uh, Brexit, where on the one hand France and Germany are involved in their own um, elections processes, mm -hmm. and that will take them out of the general European debate somehow. Um, and being Spain, one of the most affected, or supposedly one of the most affected uh, countries by Brexit, I think that those two, two components, to gain weight on the one hand and to be present, more present, and to have a voice on the Brexit issues, I think will be the objectives. So what's the internal consensus about why Spain has lost so much power? Because I remember, you know, if we do go back about a decade, as you say, um, Spain was maybe not in the top tier next to France and Germany, but it was certainly in the, in the next tier. It was seen as roughly equivalent to Italy, I suppose, and, and at least as important as, as Poland in terms of the future direction of, uh, of Europe. Um, why um, do you think Spain has faded so much from the, from the top table? In my opinion, and, and I think it's uh, also shared by many experts, there are two main reasons. One has been the lack of political will. Uh, Zapatero wasn't interested at all in, in foreign policy, um, so he just let that go. Uh, he must uh, have thought that with all the inertia that we brought from previous era uh, times, it was more than enough. But to add, uh, we added the to, to that we added the crisis, and the crisis took us any influence. I mean, all, all we could be proud of uh, was lost 
in very few years. So both those uh, two components, I think, have been very, very uh, important for Spain to lose uh, influence mm. in Brussels. And if I may, if I may add to to Christina, there's we are in the midst of an uncertain process of elite regeneration in in Spain, and the elites that were broomed in the early 2000s, they were broomed at times of economic affluency, where Spain took for granted being in the core, so to speak, core European countries, NATO member, etc. So these elites produce politicians that had little uh, experience in foreign policy that were very much a part of the party, Paul Aparachic. And both Zapatero and Rajoy, although Rajoy is a civil servant, in a way they, they epitomize this uh, this, uh, this, this elite challenge. So they adopted an approach to foreign policy, which was mainly, you know, very pro-European, but not very keen on putting their whole weight behind being European initiatives, although Spain has been generally there. And a managerial approach to foreign policy that especially in the last few years has been naturally, I have to say, focused on you know, regaining credibility and boosting economic recovery. So we have that. And then on the other hand, Spain does have a visibility problem because it's not seen even when it's actually there, mm -hmm. such as with the global strategy, CSDP, Spain does things, but there's a trouble of, of our political leads to be there and be seen as part of of, of the decision-making process. And lastly, I have to say, um, to the credit of the Spanish diplomats, they really don't like the spotlight. They like this kind of behind-the-scenes brinkmanship and building European coalitions, not being out there in the in the picture, but rather being a little bit behind, you know, forming forming the European coalition. And that, that helps to some extent, but you need, you know, we need a kind of a Spanish milliband. But to what extent do you think the problem is Miliband and to what extent do you think the problem is more uh, Rajoy? Because um, he's not somebody who speaks very good languages. He's not particularly outgoing. Um, he's not been a great builder of alliances or coalitions. So why do you think uh, anything's really going to change given that he's still going to be the prime minister? Well, I have to say the overwhelming assumption here is that we can't spare, we, we can't expect a U-turn, uh, so he will be relying on professional, capable people. Um, I have to say that nowadays, I mean, there's a lot of criticism of on 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 our presidents, etc. But I have to say the benchmark notice in foreign policy in the EU is not being a pain in the neck, and in that regard, Spain takes credit in not being a pain in the neck, with the exception of of Kosovo recognition or one or two isolated incidents. But it's true that 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 Rajoy, although has been more you know, a loyal European, he doesn't, you know, he grew up in Galicia, he's a party politician, he understands the need for Europe, but he's kind of uh, less, uh, you know, less, you know, person focused on, on outreach. Though I have to say, languages, uh, Felipe González spoke a little bit of German and a little bit of French, but he managed to, to put Spain back at the center. So uh, Rajoy has been learning English and doing stuff, but it's more of a personal attitude. And this is the brinkmanship that the Spanish politicians, not only in government, need to cultivate. Maybe the glimmer of light or the flicker of light will be that we have a powerful parliament with some politicians who begin to ask questions about foreign policy. So we will see interesting dynamics between government and parliament in that regard. And the deal on Turkey and the deal on Brexit and the role that parliament played um, might be a harbinger of things to come from Spain. If so I may add... 
Sorry, I wanted to add something. And um, the first thing that the new foreign minister will have to tackle uh, regarding the European Union will be the deficit, will be Spanish deficit. Because even after all these um, austerity measures, we still haven't complied with the deficit imposed by Brussels. We all know that it's part of the first measures that the, will, the government will have to take. So the, the role of this new minister, which knows, who knows very well Brussels, who has a very good negotiation capacity, will be essential for that. If Spain doesn't get an agreement, whatever it is, um, <coughs> a satisfactory one, uh, both for Brussels and both for us, it will be very difficult that we can do anything um, beyond uh, in Europe. You know, if we are not credible, as, as Borja just mentioned, mm -hmm. credible enough in that aspect, it will be very difficult for Spain to um, mm -hmm. take the initiative in, our, in other kinds of policies. But presumably the, the assumption is that um, a face-saving device will be saved. I mean, people have decided not to fine the Spanish government or the Portuguese government for breaking the fiscal rules because the last thing the EU needs at the moment is another big crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is playing a, a consideration. Like I said, I mean, ironically, Spain has been growing for some time, uh, but the deficit's still there, and that was actually one of the one of the factors behind the this urgency to to build a government so that you can negotiate. And um, um, Podemos at this point, you know, the party that grew, capitalized on discontent with austerity, corruption of of the Spanish system. Uh, has been somewhat losing momentum, and if if Europe comes back again like the black-clad men, you know, imposing austerity measures, which Spain will have to do anyway, mm -hmm. I think this will be detrimental. Given that Spain is a country that remains European, pro-European, where Europe is not a significant cleavage, but where Euroscepticism has been growing during the crisis. So, so yeah, this will be this will be one of the first challenges. Completely agree with Christine on this. So, um, last question. I mean, obviously, Spain cares a lot about Morocco and uh, the migration crisis from that perspective. Um, what are the other things that uh, it will bring to the discussions if there is a more active Spanish voice um, and you manage to, to get through the immediate problem of, uh, of, of doing a deal around Spanish debt? I think, uh, Mark, I think that the overwhelming concern of Spain at the moment is the, is the management of Brexit and prevent domino effects. In a way, a, a little bit of a salvaging the European project, which has elements of foreign policy, but it, it relates a lot to internal European dynamics. Secondly, I will say uh, stability in the neighborhood. And Spain, yes, has traditional, you know, traditionally focused on the South, not only northern Africa, as people tend to think, but the southern fringe, the Sahel, where it's, you know, this is an area where Spain has been asking the EU to do more through CSDP and where it partners regularly with France through the Operation Barhan and the other EU missions. So probably you, you'll see a lot of that. But overall, I think an emphasis on de-escalation and also looking, looking a little bit to the east. All this is not the Spanish priority, but it's a, a, a cleavage in Europe. So... So I think Spain will be trying to combine this East and South emphasis, as they've been doing already in the previous government uh, in NATO, for instance. 
last question to you, Christina. How long do you think this government will last? Because it's taken a year to put together, but it has no majority in Parliament. It's going to be very difficult to form a budget. Um, uh, is there going to be another election? Well, that's the key question, and nobody knows. There, there are several scenarios. One of them is, um, yeah, we'll have um, new elections soon, in one year, more or less, because uh, the government is not able to negotiate anything with the other opposition parties, and uh, so they can't pass any law, so we need new elections. That's, that's one scenario. The other one is that they, kind, uh, they try to agree... Uh, which they have already done with uh, Ciudadanos, like the, the, the middle party, um, on a certain issue, on a list of issues, there is in fact 150 measures that they have agreed upon um, to start developing throughout the next, the, the coming months. Um, it's, it's a question whether that will work or not, because they even if they agree to go together to parliament, they still need the support or at least the abstention of the Socialist Party, which they have got now for the, for the naming of the new government, of, of Rajoy. But who knows if the Socialist Party will be willing to um, support all, some of those measures. The third scenario which uh, would make a lot of sense, but not things doesn't don't work like that so much in Spain. Is that the the three parties would agree upon a series of reforms that are badly necessary in in Spain, and that they could work together. Given the the situation of the Socialist Party, that seems very unlikely. But that could be the only work to go forward. So there are people. Uh, Going back to your question, Mark, there are people who think that this will be a very weak and short government, giving them one year, one and a half years at the most, um, giving them time enough for the Socialist Party to recover if they are able mm -hmm. to do it, or if not, it can go uh, up to the four years because, mm -hmm. um, you know... So to end, it, it could either be a, a weak and short government or a weak and, and long government. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, we'll come back and we can we can see how how uh, strong or weak it is and how long it's lasting. But thanks, that was that was great. So before we um, uh, go to the the bookshelf segment, we should just check in on the the British constitutional crisis. Connor, you're sitting in London and have been following it and watching it unfold. Can you let us know what what's going on? Sure, Mark. So in in brief, the story is that. Uh, that yesterday the, the UK's High Court produced its ruling that Parliament must be given a vote on the triggering of Article 50, the mechanism by which the UK would leave the European Union. Now, this, this has come as something of a surprise. Um, it was generally expected that Theresa May's government would be able to trigger Article 50 on its own without having to consult Parliament using its prerogative powers. But uh, the court has issued its ruling, and so now there's a, obviously there's been a pretty major reaction in the in the UK press and uh, and in politics you've probably seen the the front pages of the tabloids this morning calling these judges enemies of the people uh, and this morning a, uh, a conservative MP Stephen Phillips has resigned from his quite safe Tory seat in the northeast of England in Lincolnshire so there are two big issues you know one is the the, the fallout in terms of how this will affect brexit itself will you know will this offer some opportunity to either avoid Brexit entirely or delay it or soften it. And there's also the, the question of how this will affect Theresa May's government domestically. What do you think the, um, the, 
the fallout's going to be? Because you've had this, I mean, a lot of the pro-Remain people were hoping that Parliament might be able to slow down or even reverse the, the, the Brexit as a result of this mechanism. Do you think that's likely to happen? I mean, the honest answer is I don't know, but it seems un- unlikely. But obviously, as you say, um, Parliament it does have a majority for in favour of Remain, but they all know that their constituents have voted for, for leave, or in many cases have voted for leave. So um, while they will get the opportunity to, to vote based on their own views, you would expect that many will vote based on, on the views of their constituents and the views that were passed down in the referendum in, in June. But I guess there is the question of, while they might not be able to, uh, to vote against triggering Article 50, they might be able to, to, to influence the bill that would that would um, that would trigger Article Fifty, so they may be able to to soften it somewhat. That that really remains to be seen. It's because if you look at the the figures for the um, for, for the election, they're only I think they're less than one hundred and fifty out of almost six hundred MPs in in Wales and uh, England whose uh, constituents voted uh, um, uh, remain. In fact. You know, over half of conservative voters and 30 percent of Labour voters across the country voted uh, voted to leave. So that will obviously change what they're doing. But you could still see lots of conditions being attached to to a bill as it goes through. And that could slow things down because um, and that is something which other member states are worrying. I understand that Theresa May has promised that she'll she'll. stick to her plan of invoking article 50 in march by march of next year do you think that that's uh that's a, a wise promise for her to make no uh, i don't know i can understand why she wants to to come out and make a strong statement that she's still committed to her to her course of action but it's simply no longer in her gift to guarantee that that she will be able to trigger article 50 by by march depending on how that that process in Parliament goes. As you say, MPs may be able to, to attach certain conditions to the Brexit bill. Um, and I guess one of those, one of the ideas that's floating about today as, as being likely is that they will request the a kind of the, the running commentary that Theresa May pledged that she was not going to provide to Commons. So they will look for some, they will look for some more oversight on the process as, as it evolves, but it, it remains to be seen exactly how much they will be able to extract in terms of their ability to influence or, or soften Brexit. And the the by-election, which is going to take place in Stephen Phillips's constituency, I mean, that's a strange thing because he was actually on the the Leave side, but he, um, I think, was in favour of Britain staying in the single market and was felt that it was deeply undemocratic, the idea of of government not referring things back to Parliament. But what do you think is going to happen in that by-election? Yeah, I mean, with, with Stephen Phillips, it's not exactly clear what the nature of his objection was. As you say, he was a he was a lever during the referendum campaign, but his his background is as a barrister, so it may well be that the, the principle, the legal principle that the government was was trying to circumvent that he objected to. But he's also accused the government of of lurching to the right in recent in recent weeks. So it may be a case that he uh, is looking for a softer kind of Brexit, and and, and this uh, the government's hard Brexit stance doesn't sit well with him. In terms of the by-election, the most interesting thing to note is that uh, one of the UKIP leadership candidates, Suzanne Evans, has decided to throw her hat into the ring for that by-election. Um, as I say, it, it was a fairly safe Tory seat at the last election. Uh, Stephen Phillips won with a majority of 56%. So it's hard to see 
that that being overturned completely, but it may become a marginal seat in future. One of the other interesting things is that British MPs are starting to talk about the courts in a similar way to how uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Polish president talk about their courts as overturning the the will of the people. And that's been quite shocking to many people how uh, much of a battering the the judges have taken for for doing their their job. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, there's enormous irony here in that um, the Brexiteers are, are howling outrage at the at the at the restoring of sovereignty to Parliament. When, of course, that was a huge part of the of the campaign to leave the European Union was that it would allow them to restore sovereignty to Parliament instead of having decisions made by unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. And now that the that it seems that the will of Parliament is is against them, they're no longer so keen on that principle. Um, and as you say, there have been some some awful attacks on the on the judges personal attacks and attacks based on their sexuality and all sorts of things today so there, there, i mean the reaction from the uk press has been surprisingly strong and of course that has in turn um led to a an extremely strong reaction from the from the left wing and so we'll see more how that plays out in the coming days one of the interesting things about the, the where the court case comes from is, is that it's being um led by um a a uh, former model who is uh, a fund manager called Gina Miller and a Spanish hairdresser and I think some some other people. So it's, it's, it's private citizens who are calling for Parliament to be empowered rather than the House of Commons itself taking the government to, uh, to, to the High Court. But we will be coming back to this again when there's a bit more details on, on what's happening and we will also no doubt come back to the Spanish situation once we've seen this new government in action. But before we end, we have one more thing to do, which is the the bookshelf segment. Um, Borja, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, um, not right at the moment, but some time ago I I finished this uh, Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clark because there's a lot of references about how our time relates to, to 1914. But I think it's a brilliant piece on foreign policy and how foreign policy is actually implemented, the differences between headquarters, capitals, and the different embassies, and the role of bias in, in, in taking decisions. And maybe secondly, I just finished, uh, in order for my own book on Bosnia, I just finished uh, this uh, Ivo Andrich book on the Drina, the bridge on Drina, which is, I have to say, a you know, really good novel on on that part of Europe, the, the Drina Valley, and the different lives of generations at the end of the Ottoman Empire. So that's really highly recommendable. Okay. How about you, Christina? Um, I would like to recommend a book which is not new either. Um, it's called In Europe by journalist, by Dutch journalist Gerd Mack. And it's a journey, both historical and physical, throughout uh, Europe, uh, right at the end of the last century. And um, it's a book that contains a lot of anecdotes, uh, conversations with a lot of people and historical data. And um, I don't think it's good to read all the going throughout the whole book uh, in just one session because it's quite long. But it's very good to remember uh, why Europe is today as it is, where we come from. And I think we we tend to forget it. And um, especially these days with all the European crisis and so on, it's very good to to remember what people um, thought during the First World War, Mm -hmm. something that, for instance, here in Spain, we didn't live. So it's uh, quite 
um, different for us, or what people thought after the Second World War, and uh, for us Spaniards, it's the same. We didn't live through that, and uh, what people thought about uh, about uh, after um, the Berlin uh, Wall fall and all those things that have uh, done Europe as it is today. Um, the other book I'm reading right now is, I mean, that is on my on my shelf all the time because I read it from time to time. The other one that I'm reading now, it's a, a novel, as Borja mentioned. It's um, the Tetralogy by Elena Ferrante, um, The Good Friends, and all the other titles. And uh, it's a very good description of the evolution of a woman um, in Naples, throughout the 20th century. Uh, it also, it's it's a very good reading, it's very easy to read, but uh, makes you realize how um, our societies have evolved. It's it's a novel, it's it's not an essay. Or, it's not very uplifting though, is it? The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 this one is not bad. I mean, it's not very depressing because, uh, you know, we have evolved, especially in the south of Europe, we have evolved quite much from uh, mm-hmm. the starting point, yeah. Okay. So I've been reading uh, a really interesting uh, paper by Ronald Inglehart and Pippa Norris, um, uh, which is written for the Harvard Kennedy School. It's called Trump, Brexit and the Rise of Populism, Economic Have-Nots and Cultural Backlash. And they have been trying to understand whether the rise in populism around Europe is being powered by economic uncertainty or cultural anxiety. And they have a huge data set and they spend a lot of time going through different hypotheses. And to cut a long story short, they find that it actually the economic arguments are much less convincing than the cultural anxiety, particularly of petit bourgeois and working class people who feel that their status is being undermined by changes in the economy, and that that is uh, a bigger driver of populism than inequality or economic uncertainty. That it's uh, it's very interesting and uh, full of fascinating facts. So that brings this discussion to an end. If you've enjoyed it, please uh, give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. Or even better, write about it on your Facebook page or ECFR's Facebook page, www.facebook slash ECFR. Or um, come to our own uh, website, www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where you can also see links to all of the publications that we've mentioned and lots of other a cornucopia of, uh, of fascinating articles and facts which uh, ECFR policy fellows are producing um, all the time. But for now, from Borja Lasheras and Cristina Manzano and Connor Quinn and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. ECFR's podcasts are researched by Ulrika Fanka and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atinaro. <laughs>